that it's important to keep, you know, if you're in a conversation, not to be distracted by a cell phone and look at that while talking to, you know, all of these little things mm-hmm. that I have to really practice, you know, mm-hmm. because I, as much as sometimes I like, I find myself veering into my phone, I have to really hold back from that when we're watching a movie that I've seen 10 times that they want to watch again, not getting on my phone. You know, I hide myself under the blanket so that he doesn't see me using <laughs> because. Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to, and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sasna Ghosh um, from San Diego State University. Yeah. Uh, today, Sassin is going to bring us a conversation about the 2018 film Napoli Ever After. Uh, then we're going to jump into our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new academic article. Does sexual desire fluctuate more among women than men? And then in good or bad advice, we're going to talk about, as requested actually by one of our listeners, more info about kids and telephones. Here we go. It's a hot topic, you guys. I was going to say, what that noise? What was that noise referencing? <laughs> it was like a Muppet. Like, you know, like the noise horn from like sports? Like, Come on, you guys. Sports, <laughs> obviously. Have you been out of sports for a while? Because I don't think the stadiums are full with like walk a walk. That's like a different sound. <laughs> Maybe it's like a redneck uh, southern thing Maybe. where different air horns down <laughs> up where you are, yeah, across where you are, across. Uh, yeah, we're basically all on the same latitude, aren't we? How fun! Anyway, geography. If you've had any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at attachpodcast, or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. As always, for bonus content and to support this little tiny pod of ours, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached, and consider becoming a patron, becoming a member, and supporting us. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all of those places, uh, please consider to rate and review it, uh, and then subscribe, you know, all those fun things. But before we get to all of that fun goodness, how are you guys doing? Tell me stories. Woods, what's up in your life? Well, so there are uh, two seasons of the year uh, for which one of my usual coping skills for when I'm like stressed or you sure. know just looking to distract myself is um, like window shopping online. You know, I've got like a bunch of carts across a whole bunch of places <laughs> just filled up with stuff that I'm never going to purchase. And clothes is like one of those things where um, my carts do not align with the sadness of my wardrobe. However, there's like two seasons a year where I definitely don't check out because I don't know what happens at, I would say designers. I don't know at the level at which I'm shopping, like real, I don't know, like designers have much to do. I don't know. I'm so excited (laughs) to hear where this is going. I don't think I know. They believe that women start wanting to look like the holidays around that time, the seasons, oh. right? And so there's like a time in November, December-ish sure. where a lot of the clothes are covered in like glitter. 
Um, some of them like holiday-ish images. I don't know who's wearing these, co- but it's like everywhere. Like I neither want to wear Christmas trees on my shirts, nor do I need to go out for New Year's Eve every day of the week. This is going to be shocking to you, but your like Instagram advertisements, I think are very yeah. different from mine. That's probably true. <laughs> to be fair, I do click on a lot of them. Okay. Like, Instagram has figured me out. Yeah, and I'm no, perfectly okay with it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that looks like a very comfortable uh, one-piece outfit that requires solely I put it over my shoulders and I zip it up, right? It's not Carhartts per se, but it's a lot of jumpers. <laughs> Robbers? What are we calling those? Robbers. I'm not sure. sure, sure, sure. But this time of year, the clothes yes. look a lot like springtime and so yeah. it is utterly pastel colors everywhere mm. and i don't know who prefers to dress like an easter egg it isn't me um <laughs> but i do like to look online and confirm that like yes i was right the season of easter colors has started and i will not be able to shop again even pretend shopping <laughs> for probably two months uh, maybe it's not two months. Maybe it's like a solid month, but it's a lot of like lilac. Is that a color that like people seek out? Like that? Oh, I look really good in lilac. I don't. Anyways, that's a good so that's point. What I've been up to. It's not my preferred color. Anything that's like light like that, I just yeah. don't wear because I tend to just get stuff on it. Destroy. So like, yeah. So I can't really wear light colored things. I, including I pastels. No. Even if you're somebody who can wear pastels, are you like looking to go into stores this time of year and being like, oh, thank God, pastels are back. Like it's <laughs> all that they make. It's too much. So I've been spending We want to know, really. listeners, let us know. Are you a pastel person? Talk to us. What about you, Sesson? Are you into pastels? I'm not. I don't think I am. I mean, I have to go through my closet. Perhaps I have a couple things here and there, but they probably are seasonal <laughs> outfits. I like blacks a lot. I like um, black is my color, honestly, in terms of clothes. I love black and grays. Um, I like blacks and jewel and jewel colors. I know exactly Mm. this room of three women. (laughs) Please read it. Um, (laughs) Instagram has me very figured out last time. I think two days ago uh, I was, uh, you know, advertised a store and they had, I think, four different types of black turtlenecks and i got two of them because <laughs> you need confirm that algorithm for another you day <laughs> you need variety oh mercy sesson what's going on with you in your world um not much i'm trying to um perfect a healthy pasta okay. sauce because i'm obsessed with pasta oh. and could eat a day and night every day of the week Maybe just switch the noodle, but I could eat sure. constantly. What's your favorite kind of noodle? Believe it or not, spaghetti. I love oh. a straight up spaghetti, not spaghettini. Angel want... hair no. or S- the middle? Yeah, straight up spaghetti, not spaghettini, not the small ones, not the, th- yeah, I like it. And I realized I don't like as many like um, small noodles as I thought I did in the past. I'm like, I really like the long noodles a lot better. And every time I think of really, really good noodles, PR, by the way, I think of that time I went to visit you and Dave and you made yeah. them from scratch. It took four hours. I, we never ate until like, I don't know, midnight, but it was so good. <laughs> never ate. We never. I just sat there and watched you cook. I just, you could tell they're, they're used to working at that pace with food and like, I'm like an instant, like I need the food 
to be done quickly and you could tell they were just fine with that pace like and happy to take you know the four hours while I was like oh gosh I can't say how hungry I am I'm just gonna keep helping you have the cheese board the cheese board helps a lot and wine and wine and we were whining and that allowed me to like suppress my appetite I have perfected pasta. Like I now have a pasta cutter. I'm not doing it all by mm-hmm. hand. I now have like a machine, you know, a, a cranker machine that will cut it for you. You did have that then. You had oh, a cranker. I did. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Could you well, imagine visiting her house in the years prior where she was, you would have eaten like three days later. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. I have since thought about like, do I buy a pasta maker? Do I? Yes. No, but I don't think pasta makers have come far enough. Like I need it to be like, quicker than it you know how bread machines now can make bread much sure. more than the old ones i don't know if pasta's gotten there like pasta makers uh, yeah you're gonna be super disappointed in me the bread machine i do own one but i never use it because the sourdough starter i have needs like a solid 24 hours of rising so it just doesn't do it for me can't do it well, um, yeah, I love my bread maker. I don't use it either. Carlos makes fun of all the things I don't use in the house and will point it out periodically. Like that thing See, that's just, sitting in the garage. Yeah. You're just speaking theoretically. Like, you know how bread makers are. Not like <laughs> when you use the bread maker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I'll let you know once I get to my perfected sauce, it's not there yet. Like I'm trying to make it without a meat and meat is always mm. so much better. And this is a tomato sauce. Yeah, I've never liked marinaras. I've never been into meatless sauces. I tried turkey, but that's not happening. I'd rather not have any meat in there at all. So yeah, I'm down for any kind of really good recipes, you know, for a meatless sauce. What about just switching to like pesto? No, I want a red sauce. I want to like a deep, hearty red sauce that, Mm -hmm. you know tastes yeah. like meat. I've tried chorizo kind. I've tried every like substitute well, of meat. Chorizo's meat though. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. No, no, soy <laughs> chorizo. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. The soy. The tofu, okay. It feels like I'm eating a paco or something. It's not good. I'll get there. Well, listeners, it. if you have any uh, recipe recommendations for sesame, send it on to her nice. for a healthy yeah. red sauce. I love it. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what you got for us this week? So I have been going through my Netflix catalog and watching older movies, you know, because I've sort of, I can't decide on movies anymore. I'm finding I won't watch a certain kind of movie, dark, scary, you know, grief focused. Like, I can't do that. So it's yeah, hard yeah, to yeah. find light and airy or like movies that have really good messages that are just done well, right? But I was really, really interested in this movie that at one time I said I have to watch it, but I never did. So I went back. Um, it's called Napoli Ever After, and it stars uh, Sanaa Lathan. Um, and she plays this character named Violet Jones. And in this movie, uh, Violet, right, goes um, through a sort of a transformation process. Um, she starts out in the movie with a seemingly perfect life. And um, you see really quickly that it takes a whole lot of effort for her to maintain that life. And it's very performative. 
Um, but she does it, and I'll talk about more why in a moment. But um, you see her in this movie go through this shift in her relationships, in her career, um, with her friends, and really um, step into her own. It's about, you know, the journey on some level about a black woman who is trying to understand how to honor herself, what she needs, um, while also living in a society that doesn't always value the things she values. Um, so I really connected with the movie, one, because I'm a black woman, but also just some of the experiences she had in the movie. The title's really about hair, right? So the movie, on some level, um, the hair is really symbolic of a larger issue that we have in our society around black women and how we accept or don't accept them for who they are. Um, and so through the lens of hair, um, she goes through this journey and learns to love herself. Um, and instead of going into a lengthy conversation about the relationship between black women and their hair, um, which is directly influenced by systems of white supremacy, I will talk briefly about another aspect of it because I could talk forever about hair. Um, I want to talk about how, um, like the interpersonal exchanges between black women and people in society. Um, and again, talk about it at an interpersonal level. So I, I really, um, again, resonated with this movie and you hear more and more about black women really accepting who they are and coming to engage the world more authentically and regardless of how the world accepts them or not. But I think as a society, we have not come at all as far as we need to in order to create spaces for black women to do that. So I wanna sort of put a few questions out there, not for you all necessarily to answer, but just for people who are listening to sort of think about. Sure, um, I love it. So, you know, Right off the bat, I'll say that a lot of the time black women are engaging in a like performative, you know, position in white spaces, right? Um, and you may not see that as a white person um, because you see somebody who's just seemingly like maybe confident or, you know, seems to really be clear about how they talk about things and who they say they are. But People show up in white spaces, I think, black people differently than they show up in other spaces where they tend to feel like they look like the people they're around, right? Um, so, you know, how do we as a society, and I say we, but I'm meaning more white people. Um, right, of course. Yeah. White people. Yeah. yeah. How do you, um, people knowingly or unknowingly support systems of white supremacy just in the way they engage? black women, whether they're colleagues at work, their friends, or maybe total strangers, you know. Um, it's clear that some of us are exposed to um, the black community more than others, right? Um, so, but this question is for everybody because I don't know that there's anybody who doesn't have some level of exposure. But in particular, those who really are, I think, in relationships with people who identify as black women, right? Um, so what are maybe some of the thoughts and like behaviors that we exercise that send like messages that the white standard and white expressions are what's desired? Like, so I think about, for example, the hair piece, I'll go back to the hair and just how many compliments I get on my hair when 
it is styled in a certain way, when it has the the texture or the sort of the the look of what is considered more acceptable in our society. It's straight, it's bouncy, you know, it's like shining and it's just like this really soft texture, right? Smooth, yeah. Right. And how many times in my life I've been complimented for that. Right? And how many times like there's anybody who shows any interest in my hair when it's wet, pulled up in a bun, out, and it's a totally different texture, totally different look. And it's like almost nil, right? And I think like, okay, what message does that send me about when I'm accepted and when I'm not, right? And I've given into it completely. Like I really struggle to show up in any spaces without my hair looking a certain way, exception of now, but I'm okay with that. Um, but it's just one example. Um, and the way we talk about, you know, any issue like engaging in black talk sometimes is not something that we feel like we can do. There's ways we have to talk sometimes that we do with our white friends than we do with our black friends. And I'm just curious how much of that is based on the messages, the subtle messages, the microaggressions that we are picking up on um, as black women. So, yeah, I think. I sort of just wanted to put that out there and see what your thoughts were about that. Like, how do we create a sense of belongingness for black women um, so that they feel like they belong in their most authentic selves? Mm. I think some of what I've observed sort of in the workplaces, a lot of this is not even um, like covert or small message. I think there are huge messages too around like thinking about um, – how many times I have been asked to like complete an evaluation rubric around like either for learners or for applicants or something that involves like dressing professionally and uh, professional appearance and how utterly subjective that is and how easy it is for so how I've witnessed people uh, apply a lot of bias around how to evaluate somebody based on appearance and how inappropriate that is um just at baseline but also how i think easy it is to um discriminate like leveraging evaluation criteria to perpetuate discrimination um is uh, that's an easy one that immediately came to mind as you were talking like that i have seen that in so many different instances and spaces um not even necessarily tied to like my current institution like for years but uh, easy to plug in lots of bias. Yeah. I think uh, as a white woman, this is a hard question for me to answer, right? From my perspective, and Sess and I, you and I have had these kind of types of conversation over the years, and I always appreciate your willingness to share uh, all of your opinions with me and thoughts. Um, but I don't know the answer. And I also recognize that I am forever learning how to make sure spaces uh, with black women in it, I can make sure that they are open and the black women who are my colleagues and friends feel safe in those spaces. And I think that always starts for me with just making sure that I am listening, making sure that I am not talking over people, that I am listening. And when I don't understand something in an appropriate way, both in terms of time, you know, in, in terms of like the number of people in the room, you know, it's not always um, 
appropriate to ask questions <laughs> in the middle of like a conference, right? Conference meeting, but say, I'm so sorry, I didn't understand. Could like ask for clarification questions if you don't understand as well and knowing what that time is. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like there's moments where I feel really open to engaging in dialogue about some of the way I feel like I in white spaces and the performative aspect of things that and I realize more now that I can talk about it much more openly than I have like historically. And I've been in more white spaces than I have in black spaces, to be honest, in my life, for sure. Um and it's just interesting how, when I really think about it, like I, questioning myself, like how much of how I show up is really who I am at my core and how much of how I show up is really to make other people feel comfortable, mm. to fit into this culture of white supremacy. And white supremacy being like white people feeling their customs, their beliefs, their ideas are superior to that of everyone else, right? And so that's what that is. And so. I think when we privilege certain hairstyles or uh, privilege mm. certain language and we privilege certain forms of attire, um, we really, I think, send messages that, okay, I can't show up in the way I feel like maybe I would like to express myself differently. Um, I've never worn my traditional garments in a white space, and I have lots of them. Never. Not even I considered it, right? Because mm. I've always thought, like, I don't want people to be like, it's the wrong space and the wrong time frame, mm -hmm. right? Never mm -hmm. thinking about like how I feel in it and how I would really appreciate showing up in the kind of attire that's reflective of my ancestry and my culture. Um, there's so much that we do as a black community that is to protect white people from feeling uncomfortable in white spaces. So yeah. for such a long time, that was also because it, the well, and still the violence in our society uh, uh, against brown skin. It, it was also to protect um, your children and your safety and the safety of others too, right? So I'm sure those are uh, inherited learned behaviors to protect white people's feelings, but also ultimately to protect your life and safety as well. There's different levels of that fear, for sure. I agree. I just want people to be thinking who are listening today. Like, if you have, you know, black colleagues, black friends, like, just be mindful of how you're showing up. I'm not saying there's one right or wrong way to do it, but it all starts with self-awareness. And so I just want people to think about what are some of the subtle, not so subtle ways that they are, um, you know, sending that message of not belonging. Um, or their culture not belonging. And so, yeah, just food for thought. I love it. Thank you so much. Today's academic deep dive is a discussion of a new article in the Journal of Archives of Sexual Behavior titled, Does Sexual Desire Fluctuate More Among Women Than Men? bringing back the dramatic reading of these article titles, I just really feel like it adds a certain je ne sais quoi to uh, academic research, you know? This research is done by Dr. Emily Harris at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. And her team out of Australia, Germany, and Finland examines the common belief that men experience stable, reliable, and intense sexual desire, while women's sexual desire is weaker 
and more sensitive, changing from moment to moment depending on their circumstances. In other words, many people believe that while men have high levels of sexual desire that persists as they age, women's sexual desire is less intense and depends on how they feel about their bodies, their relationship, or stress. However, although there are many theories, mind you, that refer to gender or sexual-based differences and how sexual desire varies and changes over time, there are actually few studies that directly test this. For example, erotic plasticity theory developed in 2000 suggests that because women change more in their attitudes towards sex than men, meaning they change over time in terms of how Uh, sexually permissive they are, and because they report greater change in their sexual behavior over time, including, for example, going from regularly engaging in sexual activity to long periods of none, or reporting more fluid sexual orientations over time. This must also point to women's sexual desire changes more over time than men's desires. But the authors of this study point out there wasn't necessarily science (laughs) to uh, actually support this take. While more recent research has found that women's sexual desire declines more often after childbirth, this may be largely impacted by continued cultural expectations of women to carry the weight of parenting and childcare. Studies that have explored short-term changes in sexual attraction have found more variability for women, whereas studies testing changes in sexual arousal have not found differences between men and women. Ooh la la, what a sexy study. I love it. Sarah, what do you got for us? Well, I think uh, what's important to know before we sort of talk about what these authors found is that they're approaching this research from um, looking at sex-based differences. So gender Mm. being um, uh, tied to like gender identity, which really can sort of bring in social and cultural meanings of gender, right? Versus biological sex, which is more specific and tied to, right, genetics and physiology. Um, And they're looking at sex-based differences. Uh, There's a lot of uh, combinations of how um, researchers and non-researchers talk about gender and sex. Sure. So I think that's one important difference. Um, and they also are looking at state desire. So there's some research that looks at sexual desire as a trait level phenomenon, meaning that they are looking at sexual desire sort of at a cross-sectionally, at a single time point, and therefore I can infer your desire forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're really looking at this question you're describing, Patricia, about desire and whether and how, rather, it changes from moment to moment across time. So like trait versus state type of research we see a lot in uh, uh, personality research yep. and emotion, uh, relationship yeah. quality, emotion quality. Mm-hmm. So trait is something consistent across your whole entire life, or else with state, it fluctuates over time mm-hmm. within you as a person. Yes. So they did this across three studies. So they looked at sexual desire, variability, how it changes moment to moment, long term over time. And as it might be influenced by emotion and relationships. So Mm. uh, as you talked about, Patricia, this question about do men and women have varying, changing sexual desire differences and how their sexual desire changes sort of on the daily, across the years and the lifespan? And is it more sensitive to contextual variables, like the relationships I find myself in, how I feel day to day? And is that different for men or women? Because we have pretty strong beliefs culturally about this. So I think it's a really great... Uh, example of how to use research to explore like really powerfully held common beliefs about how relationships operate. 
So on the short term, looking at how sexual desire changes day to day, they use data from 230 couples who are part of a US-based project on relationship goals. These were couples that were um, in an exclusive heterosexual relationship. They'd been together at least three months, but on average, it was like two and a half years, um, owned a smartphone, et cetera. And they completed six surveys each day for seven days, as well as nightly surveys and a pre-survey and a post-survey. And in total, they had like over 6,600 completed surveys, buckets of data, so much information. I love buckets of data. It's my favorite type of data when it comes in bucket buckets. Loads. Is like loads of it. Loads, um, yeah. You're just like looking around, like, oh my God. Uh, and so what they found was that actually sex was not associated with variability in sexual desire, um, meaning that um, uh, men and women, how their desire changed day to day was not significantly different from each other. And that effect also wasn't linked to age or relationship length, meaning it wasn't the case for men or women sort of across the board, uh, that their variability in how they experience sexual desire day to day didn't differ. Now, feeling angry and stressed, um, and if your partner reported they were angry and stressed, those things were linked to lower desire, but that was true for men and women. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, feeling happy or close to one's partner, satisfied with your relationship, feeling like you could depend on your partner was also linked to higher desire for men and women. So there was one association, this um, link between tiredness and desire that was uh, uh, true for women, but maybe not men. And that's the only difference they found on daily short term changes. Um, so really, uh, women's desire might be sensitive to some or maybe one, but certainly not all situational factors in a way that men's isn't also tied that. So then they looked at it long term. How does this shift over 13 oh. years in a Finnish twin study. Um, so almost 14,000 twins. And what they found at baseline was on average across all those years, men's desire was on average higher. Um, and they also found that women showed greater variability in desire relative. So the variability being uh, change relative to their own average desire across 13 years. So there's some fluctuation, uh, higher or lower, around sort of own average over time. Um, uh, and that was greater change across 13 years than men. Um, but that was a really very small effect. It was not a very big difference. Mm -hmm. And they actually suggested that they were probably only able to find it because they had such an enormous sample. They had so many buckets of data. Um, they did not use the term buckets, to be clear. Uh, <laughs> they discussed it all very appropriately. Um, and also what they found was that this uh, changes were not impacted by having kids or the number of kids. So this common belief that women's desire drops more than mm -hmm. men after having kids, they did not find that. So any change that they found that was more for women than men was very, very small and not tied to transitioning into becoming a parent. And lastly, what they did was they looked at how this affected by how we feel and our relationships. They uh, did this with 95 men, 160 women, 18 to 64 years old. They had almost 5,000 observations because they were um, sending out surveys across seven days, but four times, they were randomly timed, four times a day. So they were trying to capture how much you feel like having oh. sex at this moment, whenever that they were prompted to complete the survey. So again, on average, men's desire was higher. But then when they actually looked at how this changes over time, um, there was actually uh, a lot of variability in the sample and desire. Moment to moment, people's desire to engage in sexual activity changed quite a bit. 
But that was not different for men or women. It wasn't different by age. It wasn't different by relationship length. It wasn't even different by relationship status. So women were more variable than men in how they felt in terms of how attractive they were, how close they felt to their partner, how stressed they were. But that was not tied to sexual desire differently for men or women. So no matter how attractive you feel, man or woman, that is tied to your sexual desire. Um, so Can you say that one more time? Yes, yeah, sorry. So um, even though women um, describe more changes over time and how they felt attractive, whenever anybody felt those shifts in how they felt attractive or how close they were okay. to the partner, that was tied to their sexual desire, sexual desire, regardless of whether who was reporting it was a man or a woman. So in general, we uh, men and women are similar in terms of their sexual desire, how that changes over time, much more than they are different. And it's mm. not tied to having kids. And it was similarly affected by how they felt um, in terms of their emotions or their relationship. Women and men desire to feel desired. Their mm. sexual desire changes in similar ways over time, moment to moment, day to day, year to year. Um, and I think what's really important to remember that these big pervasive conversations we have about men being really biologically driven to have this really yeah. stable, intense sexual desire, that is not what they found at all. And also these kinds of beliefs about and women's sexual desire being really sort of fickle or tied to um, how they feel each day, these trickle into relationships, right? Then men yeah. feel like they can't talk about changes in their sexual desire with their partners because they're not supposed to have times where they don't feel desire, right? Or we sort of, um, women can feel particularly rejected by men who may not be as interested in having sexual relationship at that moment because they believe that like they're always supposed to be wanting it. And then we ignore also that, how we are um, feeling every day and how we are engaged in our relationships, how close and trusting we feel, like that that could only affect sexual desire for women, which just isn't true. Mm. It can be a relational process for either. So uh, really very cool research um, taking on what I think at the end they might decide is bad advice, bad common beliefs about sexual desire. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it sort of flips a lot of the research. right on its head i mean a lot i mean having studied sexuality for a while like yeah it is such a pervasive message that men and women vary so much when it comes to sexual behavior and sexual desire so i'm curious going back to some of that like how where that's based i mean i know that some of the literature review and the study probably talked about it but Mm -hmm. i have my own curiosity around that and it just goes to show you like i think our emphasis on sexuality and sexual desire is so much about gender like so much of it is like focused Mm -hmm. on that instead of like how do we support people right like just becomes like a men versus women thing when it is referring to both i think it all there's a lot of research that pins gender like to you know men and women against each other in terms of their Mm -hmm. um behaviors and thoughts in the sexuality research it's very common I'm curious from both of your perspectives, but particularly Sesson as well, is what do you think, if we're thinking about like a sex therapist, how do you think this new information could be incorporated into their practice? I think Sarah spoke to that a little bit. I mean, there's so much shame and guilt sometimes that women experience from feeling like 
the sexual desire that they have or don't have is tied to just inherently being a woman as opposed to like there might be things that to note in terms of like where along the lines that might be more of a factor in terms of like what are the day-to-day things what are the other issues involved besides the fact that you're a woman right I think in that sense it may shift the conversation that therapists have with their clients Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think like Sarah said, it creates an opportunity for men to express their own concerns around their sexual desire with the general assumption being that men are driven for sex and that their libido is always strong and it doesn't give a lot of room for expressing anything else, right? Which doesn't really help the work that you're doing with a couple if you're not getting honest information about where they fall aspect of men's sexuality feels like it taps into a lot of like the toxic masculinity um, narrative that men are allowed to uh, experience intense desire for sexual desire and anger and those are like the two emotions through the lens of uh, toxic masculinity that men are allowed to have and this type of research like Sarah and you both were saying kind of begins yet another drop in the bucket of understanding the toxicity of that type of mindset for men and the problems for um, men's long-term mental health. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships in movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social media blogs and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at Attached Podcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please kindly rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. I love YouTube. It's fantastic. And as always, share it with your loved ones. Also, thrillingly... Hold on to your seats. I have some news. We have bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. Yay! If you want that sweet, sweet bonus content, please become a member um, at patreon.com slash attached and support this wee little podcast. Today, we are talking about kids and mobile phones. Uh, We talked about this a couple of episodes ago, way back in the beginning of season four, and um, some one of our listeners said, hey, if you ever want to, it was an academic deep dive. If you ever want to have some more content, <laughs> they didn't say it like that, like a threatening way, but they said they would really like to hear more about kids and mobile phones. So I found an article from Federal Trade Commission Consumer Advice on kids and mobile phones. There were a ton of different articles to choose from. I chose this one because it seemed to be the most neutral without like a giant agenda. So we'll see if we think they have a giant agenda or not. Or not agenda, but like weren't slandering people that disagreed with them. Let's put it that way. 
Interesting. Um, so this article starts off, I'm just going to read this and then get to their advice or their recommendations. What age is appropriate for kids to have a mobile phone? Question mark. That's something for you and your family to decide. Consider your child's age, personality, maturity, and your family's circumstances. Is your child responsible enough to follow rules set by you and the school? When you decide your children are ready for a mobile phone, teach them to think about safety and responsibility. Okay. So phones features and options decide on options who this is the first advice are you guys ready yes okay thrilling oh god you guys are jumping out of your seats i can't even handle it decide on options and features for your kid's phone your mobile phone company and the phone itself should give some choices for privacy settings and child safety controls most carriers allow parents to turn off features like web access texting and downloading some cell phones are made especially for children they're designed to be easy to use and have features like limited internet access, minute management, and number privacy and emergency buttons. So decide on options and features for your kids' phones. What do you think about that? How do you do that uh, as a family? Thoughts? Woods? Probably super important, especially if you are leaning towards maybe a younger age to introduce phones, but you probably have to really understand what each of those settings are, right? And like rehearse that. Because I think the first piece you'd introduce or maybe sort of the couch was how important it is to teach kids about safety, but also their capacity at this age, if you're um, looking, say, around 8, 9, 10 to introduce a mobile phone, their capacity to understand safety is going to be different mm. than an adult's capacity to understand. So I think probably on the back end, understanding what settings are required to be on on the phone to keep your child safe is absolutely, probably, I would think, baseline sort of minimum safety standards. Totally appropriate. Okay. Uh, Sasson, thoughts? In terms of the approach, I think if you're living in a two-parent household, and for me, I would have the conversation with my partner first before mm. I approach uh, my child to sort of negotiate those terms of like what features they can use on there. Um, I can imagine we all might have different ideas of how that should look. So and I need to make sure I'm on the same page as my partner. And then my child is very good at um, getting what he wants. We have to be <laughs> we have to be really strong together because I could see him convincing us he needs more than what we think he needs. So um, united front all the way. United front. I like that. Be smart about smartphones. Many phones offer web access and mobile apps. If your children are going to use the phone and you're concerned about what they might find online, you can choose a phone with limited internet access or you can turn on web filtering. Very interesting. Sasan, thoughts. I think I'm weary of a child, especially a young child who has any access to the internet, um, you know, outside of like being in the home with their phone, like to take a phone to school and have that, even if it's limited, I still think it could be a distraction. I think I'm also of the mind that if you want to have certain questions answered, it's good to just ask somebody in like a person have a conversation with somebody about it debate it a little bit maybe not even settle on what is the answer but to sort of be in that limbo space that we were all in before cell phones existed so I think the internet is too much of an easy out um, for and I want my child to be creative and thinking about whatever it is that you know they could find probably an easy answer for on the internet I, I want them to be sort of in their own sort of thinking process about it before they go to an answer um, sort of that's laid out for them. 
What? I love so much that um, Sesson was like thinking about how her kid would be so clever to like use the internet and like solve like homework questions. <laughs> I, on the other hand, like lit- the words you were using, I don't even really understand. This is why my answer to the first question, I think, was like, oh, you probably should do your research first and know what all these are. I definitely don't know enough about what kids could access on the internet. Like, I know that the internet can be like a but I didn't grow up with like internet access. That no. wasn't part of my childhood. And um, so I use it as a tool as an adult, but I don't really spend a lot of time like searching for fun. And fr- I mean, I don't know. I think you could quickly probably get into some problems. I would personally have to really learn and understand how the settings look and why and what. And I just don't know those very well. Um, yeah. uh, and so I agree. I think the research we looked at in the academic deep dive you're referencing earlier this season um uh did talk about that it sort of looking at developmentally what's the best fit for your kid and how well they can understand what they have access to and you feel like you can sort of trust that they will use it appropriately is like a really key caveat yeah I mean, it's interesting. My experience with children and the internet has been very different. My kids, the school that they're at, the county, um, they're all in, maybe the kids are in public school and they have a one-to-one uh, ratio for uh, Chromebooks for the whole entire district. So every single child in the district gets a Chromebook. So in school, they're taught like how to um, access it, how to utilize the internet as tools or just like different apps so they've brought home really cool like children appropriate Mm. uh apps like there's this one website called scratch where they can learn how to code and animate an object and animate different um like dinosaurs to do things so they like we go and you know like my oldest will be like hey mom what's an idea for that i can do on scratch and so we'll brainstorm and she'll be like okay i like that one and try to recreate it on scratch and do it and that's something that she learned at school and is taking home and like we could do it as a family or we can have conversations about it or like i'll look at it um and i'm like oh you know it'd be really cool if this or she would say i wonder how i could do this in this code and so she'll go and try and figure out the coding and then um my middle you know he there's all sorts of like library books and stuff like that that they can access online oh, at cool. school yeah. so that like he'll sense. go and say oh i want to learn about the dinosaurs and so he'll go and he'll read all this materials and we'll have a discussion about it so That's my cool. experience with like the internet and my children accessing it has been a little bit different it's been really really positive i don't feel like it's taking the place of them asking me questions i actually think it is like spurring a lot of like conversations that we had that I never thought that we would have we're having because of things they learn at school that they're bringing home and it's all like internet based I would not have any idea how to teach my kids about coding um, but they're learning how to do this through scratch and there's some other like websites like that where they can there's this really cool one that my um, middle son does it's like singing monsters so it's monsters which are cool and they each have different tones so he like learns how to like make music and build music because the different monsters make different songs and so we talk about what type of song he wants to do and like he'll come and show me look what he did and um so i don't know i've had a really positive experience with um my children having access to the internet but 
I think that we all have different experiences and that's okay. So whatever your experience is, that's fantastic. And my experience is different and that's also really cool. I've enjoyed it. All right. So the next section is set an example. It is illegal to drive while texting or surfing or talking on the phone without hands-free device in many states. But it's dangerous everywhere. Set an example for your kids. Talk to them about the dangers and consequences of distracted driving. So set an example with your mobile phone usage. Thoughts? Is it Woods first? I don't know. I'm glad to jump in. I think that that's probably like all... um sort of takes on role modeling, Mm. I would agree that that's probably an important piece to consider that if you're going to sort of ask that your kids be accountable for whatever the rules in your family look like, maybe not using cell phones at the dinner table or making sure that um, cell phone use before bedtime is limited so it doesn't affect sleep, um, that you are also maybe sort of modeling those things that's much easier to reinforce when that's... um, uh something we're showing that we believe is important and therefore we're sort of doing it too and also there's going to be differences in how young kids should be using phones and how adults might use phones and that's also okay so role modeling is good and also i don't expect that once my child has a cell phone that i'm going to hold myself to the same standards that we're holding her because (laughs) developmentally there are differences Right. She does not have to respond to work emails uh, and texts uh, immediately or people will uh, lose their mind. Uh, Sesson, thoughts? I mean, yes, of course, um, like across so many areas in parenting, I think you don't want to be a hypocrite when your children will quickly call you out when they think you're doing things that you tell them that they can. And of course there's limits to that and they don't always understand why you can access and have things um, that you do that they can't. Um, But there are certain things that I feel like you want to be consistent about, you know, if you're telling your child like that it's important to keep, you know, if you're in a conversation, not to be distracted by a cell phone and look at that while talking to, you know, all of these little things Mm -hmm. I have to really practice, you know, Mm -hmm. because I, as much as sometimes I like, I find myself veering into my phone I have to really hold back from that when watching a movie that I've seen 10 times that they want to watch again, not getting on my phone. You know, I hide myself under the blanket so that he doesn't see me using it because he will constantly try to grab my phone and say, uh-uh, this is movie time. I'm like, but we have seen this 10 times. And so, but I hide it because I'm like, there's truth to that. Like, you know, this is family time. This is about our movie. And whether I've seen it 10 times or not, it's about staying engaged with him and the experience. So, you know, it is hard to do, especially as we become more attached to our phones. But I think if we want to set our children on a trajectory where they don't really need their phones all the time, where they don't feel like they have to have their phones, I think that's, to me, really important. I don't want my child to feel like they have to be attached to their phone. That'd make me a little sad. Yeah, I hope that I can actively encourage my children to go into a career trajectory that doesn't require them to be available as frequently as my career requires me to be available like maybe they could go be like a national park ranger or <laughs> something literally out into nature that is not in academia yeah, it's the only way something. like cell phones can't get you it's nature right something. all right she's sending them away I don't from know. cell towers yeah uh, an interesting take on this piece of advice uh yeah or teach them to say no more often something that i'm forever trying to do 
Well, that wraps it up. Thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.